Well, friends, if you have Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, I'd love to give you one. We've actually provided Bibles on the back of the pews and seats in front of you, not just for you to have this morning as we walk through a section of the Bible, but for you to have for yourself, to take it with you and to continue reading, following up on what you'll hear uh, in the next few minutes of our time together. Uh, For these next few minutes, if you're using one of those Bibles on the back of the pew or seat in front of you, uh, you'll find the section we're going to cover on page 847. Page 847. If you have come this morning evaluating Christianity, trying to figure out a little more about what Christians believe and why they operate the way they do, the section of the Bible that we're going to consider together, not just this morning, but over the next few months, is is a wonderful section from which to evaluate Christianity. Basically, in these handful of chapters, what you've got is the founder of a movement summing up the vision and the mission of that movement with his senior staff before he leaves it with them and moves on to his next thing. Sort of, that's what you've got in these chapters. And at the center of what he's doing, as we came to last week, right at the core of what he's promising to his people, right at the heart of what he wants for them and for us, is a personal knowledge of God. Not just facts about God, not just what God is like, but a a deep experience of what he's like. A deep and personal knowledge of why he's wonderful. That was Jesus' end game. That's why he came, and that's why he died, and that's why he rose, and that's why he returned to the Father. That's what Christians believe. That's the center of our hope, and that's what we want out of our faith. We want to know God. And what we see in our text for this week is that if we do come to know this God in the way that Jesus has come to open for us, well, it'll change your life. There's just no way around it. It'll change your life. Last year, uh, my family had the wonderful opportunity of moving into this neighborhood, just a few blocks from the church, into a house that we have come to love um, already in the, the last year or so that we've lived there. One of the first things I did when we chose to make this move and then moved into this house was try to get to know the house, right? This is our home now. I want to know a little about, about its history and about the neighborhood that, it, that it's in. So, for example, one of the first things I came to know about the house is that it was built in 1920, right after and a couple of years after a, a huge disaster in this neighborhood. In 1916, this whole neighborhood right around where we're sitting right now was wiped out by a fire that took out tons of homes, block after block of homes. So I now know that my house was part of sort of rebirth of the neighborhood after that fire wiped almost everything out in our area. That's cool. I've used that at a couple of parties. You know, that's a nice little fact to have at your disposal when you need it. Not long after I learned this fact about my house, I also learned that my house has mold growing under it. (laughs) Both things I know One of those things involves me. It involves me. It affects me. It changed me in a way. Learning that my house was part of the rebirth of this amazing neighborhood is something I pull out every so often at a party with an interesting factoid. 
Knowing my house had mold under it, well, immediately I'm all into this. I've got to figure out why is there water under my house? What could be done to stop that water and moisture from growing under there? I'm finding home remedies to try to hold back the mold. I'm spraying it down with vinegar. I don't know if that's worked, but I did that. I'm, I'm finding out old remediation tips. I'm on YouTube. I'm calling friends. I'm doing everything I can to try to figure out how to solve this problem because I know what mold is. It's not good for you. You breathe that in over time, and eventually you get sick. Knowing there's mold affected me differently. You might even say that if I had not done anything different, if I had treated the mold thing like I treated the year my house was built, if I just pulled that out every now and then at a party when the conversation kind of wanes and there's, there's a little bit of a silence, probably what you would say is that you actually don't really know that you've got mold growing under your house. Something's broken there in that knowledge. Either you don't know that it's real or you don't know what mold really is. You don't know the possible effects of it. You don't know how how seriously you've got to address it, that it won't take care of itself. At some level, you don't really know it. Knowing God is more like knowing you've got mold under your house than knowing what year your, your house was built. I know that's not a great analogy in a way. No analogy is perfect. Knowing God is not like knowing you have mold. God is not like mold. It's a, it's a, it's a good thing to know God. He's wonderful. He's beautiful. You, you will have your life transformed for the better if you know him. But in a way, it is kind of like knowing you have mold growing under your house. It affects you. If it doesn't, you don't know him yet. You don't really know him yet. There's, there's something about him that you haven't connected yet. Or there's something that hasn't translated all the way down to the inside. You can say you know him. But if it has no effect on you, you don't. That's what Jesus wants to teach us about knowing God in our passage this morning. If you know him, it changes you. And I want to walk you through what Jesus has to say about knowing God and about what he has done to make this possible in two really simple steps that have really big implications for our lives as Christians, for what it means to follow Jesus. Two very simple ideas with huge implications. Idea number one, obedience comes from love. Obedience comes from love. And idea number two, love comes from the Spirit. Love comes from the Spirit. Let me show you what Jesus shows us. Will you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read beginning in John chapter 14, verse 15, and then carrying forward to the end of verse 24. Jesus is speaking and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, 
you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. First simple point from what Jesus says to us in John chapter 14 is this. Obedience comes from love. Sometimes in John, to make it super clear what the main point is, Jesus will repeat himself at the beginning and at the end of a section. It's like he's building a sandwich and he wants you to know that everything you're going to hear comes in between these two pieces of bread. These, these pieces of bread form the brackets, form the, 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 the delivery system for the goodness of this sandwich. Don't miss what comes at the beginning and what comes at the end. Did you notice as we read that Jesus says almost exactly the same thing at the top of this paragraph and at the bottom of it? In verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then again, in verses 21 to 24, in several different ways, makes the same basic claim. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then as a kind of photo-negative version, verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Love for Jesus leads to obedience to Jesus. That's the point. Obedience to Jesus shows you love Jesus. It's not like if you love him, you ought to obey him. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? If you love me, you really ought to be obeying me. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. It's cause and effect. It's inevitable. It goes together by necessity. Love flows into obedience the way a river flows to the sea. That's what he's saying. Now remember this, guys. Jesus is still talking about the personal knowledge of God that he came to share. That's what last week was all about. He came to show us the Father. He's still talking about this. Can you see how? Basically, what he's saying is that inside this relationship, obedience is going to be inevitable, not because you've got any reason to fear and not because you've got anything to prove. Obedience is going to be inevitable inside this personal knowledge of God through Jesus because you've got every reason to trust the one who gives you the commands that he's given you. To know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. Think about it this way. Jesus, in this text, he's showing it. Jesus is not after your, your simple compliance. He doesn't simply want to make sure you stay in line, as if all that really matters to him is that you do what you're told. If you know what's good for you, he might have said, you'll keep my commandments. That's not what he said, is it? That'd be obedience that comes from fear. 
That's a super shallow kind of obedience. It has nothing to do with a personal relationship. That's the kind of compliance that a, that a shameless speeder has when his Maps app says there's a speed trap ahead. You know, he slows down in that situation, not because he really loves the person who's watching, but because he fears the person who's watching. He doesn't want to get caught. It's not personal. That's the kind of compliance a prisoner of war had in a German Stalag. Our boys, we, we showed them the, the classic uh, World War II movie, The Great Escape, a couple weeks back. You know, the one where they're always, uh, it's got Steve McQueen in it. They're, all, they're, they're hunkered down in, their, in, in this prison camp that's for all the most naughty of the prisoners, the ones who are always trying to escape, and this one's supposed to be impossible to escape from. And, and on the surface, these guys mostly stay in line. They walk in line just like they're told to. They stop when they're told to stop. They stand at attention. They sit down and eat. They do what they're told to do. But they don't, they don't really obey. Their, their compliance is really just carving out the space they need to do what they really want to do. Dig a tunnel out from under the bottom of the kitchen, out through the, through the fence and into the woods so they can get out of there. Compliance is just protecting their real autonomy because that's what they want. Jesus didn't care about compliance. Jesus wants you. Jesus also doesn't care about your performance. If he were, if what he really wanted to see was that you, can, that you have what it takes to be part of his movement, that you belong here, you got this, then he might have said something like, if you've got what it takes, you'll keep my commands. We'll see. That would lead to a kind of obedience that flows from pride, wouldn't it? Let me show you what I can do. It's obedience of the student who wants to be a teacher's pet. The obedience of the athlete who wants some extra stickers on the helmet. It's obedience that says, me, 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 look at me, look what I can do. At best, it's transactional. I give you obedience, you give me credit. But that's not what Jesus looks for. Jesus isn't after compliance. Jesus isn't after your performance. Jesus is after your friendship. Jesus wants personal knowers of God. Which is to say, he wants your love. He's talking about obedience that comes from a personal relationship of affection and trust. See, obedience that comes from, from, from fear, you know, like the simple, straightforward prisoner of war camp kind of compliance. Or obedience that comes from performance, the pride, the desire to prove myself, that I belong here. Both of those are really ultimately about me, the one who obeys and what I want. Or don't want. But obedience from love, if those types of obedience say, I matter most, obedience from love says, Jesus matters most. Jesus is the center of my life. Jesus is the one that I trust, the one that I love, the one that I know wants good for me. Of course, I want what he wants for me. He's important to me, and I'm important to him. That's the kind of obedience Jesus is looking for. If you love me, then you're going to obey me. You'll keep my commands. Obedience flows from love. Now, friends, there are two huge implications of this connection Jesus is trying to make for us. Two huge implications to notice. First, why obedience is so important for Christians. Jesus is showing us this. Obedience is so important for Christians, not because it shows how worthy you are, but because it shows how worthy he is. Obedience for a Christian is not how you show how worthy you are. It's how you show how worthy he is. 
See, here's the reason I want to make sure you get this. There is a really basic misunderstanding of Christianity that lumps what Jesus came to offer in with what religion in general typically offers. As if what he came to offer was a more clearly lined out path for you to prove yourself to somebody. As if to get into a personal relationship with God, as if to really know him, you have to prove it first. You have to obey well enough for long enough that God will open the door to let someone like you of your caliber into friendship with him. And in fact, some of the, some of the things that Jesus says in this, these verses that we've read could even point you in that direction if you didn't see them in the right context. There are places where he says here that whoever loves me, obeys me, and he will be loved by my father. Did you notice that? And he's right about that. Love always calls to love. It's right that, that, that love leading to obedience leads into a deeper and deeper knowledge of God, building a healthy relationship with him where his love is drawn in by our love and ours then is drawn in by his love and then his by our love. And it's a cycle that just reinforces and reinforces like any healthy relationship with anybody. When you prioritize one another, the relationship gets better, doesn't it? Deeper. It's the kind of relationship in which someone shows themselves to you because the love is there on both sides. But you need to know that this cycle of love, it didn't start with us loving God, drawing something out of him. It starts with God loving us when we weren't lovable. In one of his letters, John writes, in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, at the start of this relationship, our contribution was to disobey God. Our contribution was to say, you're not actually trustworthy. I'll be better if I follow my ways than if I follow yours. That's our contribution to the start of this friendship. And then God's contribution is to say, you know what? I love you anyway. I want good for you. I am good for you. I'll pay the cost of your sin. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to pay the cost of our sin so that we could know him. Obedience is not how you show how worthy you are. It's not how you kick down the door God put up between you and him. But obedience is not optional for Christians either. That's because it's the natural result of seeing what you have in Jesus. If you don't obey him, you don't see what you have in him. Once you're on the inside of this relationship that God begins with God's love, once you know who it is you're dealing with, if you really know who you're dealing with, you're going to want to obey him. Because the Christian's obedience makes a statement about Jesus, the one that he loves. Friends, imagine it like this. Imagine that you get chosen to sit down for dinner at a Michelin-rated fine dining establishment with a world-class chef who sits behind a table he's laid out for you with a tasting menu he's prepared especially for you. And imagine that chef stands behind his table in his place. You sit there in your place and throughout the evening he hands you bite after bite after bite of perfectly Paired concoctions that only he could come up with. Now imagine he says as he hands these bites to you, here, open up, bite this one. Here, open your mouth, taste this. And imagine you obey him. 
over and over. You open up, you take the bite, you chew it, you swallow it. Imagine that every time it's just so delicious that, that you're ready for the next command. Please tell me again. Tell me to open up. Tell me to take this bite. You want to give it a try. Now, in your obedience to this chef, what's most noticeable? Your willpower? Your strength at following through on all those commands? Wow, look at that discipline. Wow, look at how well he opened his mouth that time. Wow, she really chomped down great on that bite, didn't she? Is that what she noticed? And then all the focus is on the chef and what he prepared and his skill in preparing it and how enjoyable it is to be in his hands and doing exactly what he says to do at every step. Obedience matters for Christians because it shows it is good to be in his hands. He wants what's good for me. Look what he paid to have a friendship with me. He knows what's best for me. I want to be in his hands. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it because I love you. We're going to follow his commands when we know who we have in him. And that the, that the commands that he gives us come from the exact same source as the redemption he's given us. Motivated by the exact same love for us and the exact same desire to do us good. What Jesus tells us here about obedience and love has huge implications for why obedience matters for Christians. Not how you show how worthy you are is how you show how worthy he is. Now here's a second huge implication of what Jesus has said about obedience and love for our lives as Christians. He's not just showing us why obedience is so important. He's helping us realize why sometimes we struggle to obey. In what Jesus says about this connection between love and obedience, we have a powerful, clear wonderful window into why we sometimes struggle to obey him. Let me, let me draw your attention back to verse 24 again. This is the, that, that, that bottom piece of bread and the sandwich. Jesus goes negative in this version. It's a photo negative of the if you love me, you'll obey me. He says, he says if you don't love me, you don't keep my words. If you love me, he said at the top, you'll open up when I say, here, taste this. If you don't open up to take the bite, what does that say? I'm just not into what this chef offers. Something else tastes better. I'm going to hold out for that. If you don't love me, you won't keep my words. Friends, here's, here's the point. Here's the implication. You cannot make much progress in fighting against sin and fighting for obedience until you recognize that the real struggle is a struggle of love. In your heart, it's a battleground. And it's not a battle between your love for Jesus and your apathy toward him. It's ultimately a battle between your love for Jesus and your love for other things that pull you in other directions. Other chefs who say, open up, taste this, see if you like it. You can't make much progress against sin until you know your battle is ultimately a battle of the heart. Think about your obedience struggle like this. Imagine hanging over every failure 
The question, do you love him? Imagine if I answer yes. I keep getting angry when people get in my way or let me down because I don't love Jesus enough. I shade the truth sometimes to protect my reputation because I don't love Jesus enough. I'm not able to forgive when somebody's hurt me because I don't love Jesus. I'm not willing to serve that person whose needs are wearing me out because I don't love Jesus. I keep looking at pornography because I don't love Jesus enough. I can't abide in him and in his word consistently because I just don't love Jesus. Imagine if we knew that underneath our repeated struggle to obey was a deficit of love in our heart for the one who's commanded us. I'm not suggesting you think like this because I want to depress you. It's worth facing up to this, this love deficit, it's worth facing up to because you can't know real long-term and genuine life change without going to the root of the problem. Any more than you can cure a broken bone with Tylenol, no other solution is going to work. You've got to get down to the core. And it's worth facing up to because when you see what you really need, if you want to obey Jesus, when you see that what you really need is a heart level renovation. Well, then you're ready to see why what Jesus says next is such wonderfully good and life-giving news. The first point from what Jesus has said is that obedience comes from love. If you want to obey, you got to love Jesus. That's what will fuel it. The second point that Jesus takes us to is that love, this love we need, this love apart from which we cannot have victory against sin and cannot have progress in holiness, this love that we can't do without comes from the Spirit. It's a gift. The two sandwich breads are Jesus saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. But to develop what he says at the beginning and at the end of this section, Jesus goes not to what they ought to do next, but to what he's going to do next. Look at verse 16 with me. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What's Jesus talking about right here? Uh, let me invite you to come with me down into the weeds for a minute before we zoom back out to sum up what I think he's showing us about obedience and the relationship with God that fuels it. There are two really big context clues that we need to recognize to understand what this helper is all about, this helper that Jesus says he's going to send and why this helper is so important for our obedience. First context clue, remember what's going on in this section. Jesus is trying to encourage his friends at the same time that he's shooting straight with them. He's telling them that he's about to leave. That he's only going to be with them for a little while longer and then they are not going to see him anymore. He's talking about the fact that he's going to be killed. He's trying to prepare them for this. But he's telling them, not only am I going to leave, it's, it's actually going to be okay. 
Now, this was news to them. They are understandably bothered by this news. They've got big questions. In fact, the, the, the chapters are moving on partly through their questions. Their, their questions are leading Jesus to pull back layer after layer of what he means when he says, I'm going, but it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Their questions are understandable. Two times in this chapter, Jesus mentions their troubled hearts. He knows his friends are not okay with this. And so he tells them, verse 18... I will not leave you as orphans to fend for yourselves in this hard and cold world full of sin and sorrow. Yes, he says in verse 19, in a little while the world won't see me anymore. The cross was going to be his final big public appearance. And then as far as most people were concerned, he's out. But you will see me, he says, verse 19. And because I live, you also will live That leads him to verse 20. In that day when you see me again, you're going to know that I am in my Father and you and me and I and you. And in that day when he's gone through the cross and through the grave to his Father, they'll live because he does. He sums it up in verse 23. The Father and the Son will come and make their home with the believer. They'll make their home with you. Remember the context here. He's saying, I'm going away but I'll still be with you. How? How can he be with them when he's no longer with them? Because he'll send the helper. That's how. The second clue to notice here is that he's still talking about love and obedience when he introduces this helper. Everything in this whole section fits between the two commands, or the two statements, rather, at the beginning and at the end. If you love me, you'll obey me. That's his theme. So him promising to ask the Father who will then send a helper, it it has directly to do with this connection between love and obedience. Zoom back out with me. Let's sum it up. In this connection between love and obedience and in this promise of a helper... It makes perfect sense why Jesus would go here when he's got love and obedience on the brain. If you know that stretching all the way back to the prophets, there was a building hope that God would one day put his spirit into his people. Not just live among them in a temple where they could come and check in once a week. But put his spirit in them to change their lives from the inside out. In the hope of the prophets, it was God's spirit that was to be God's solution to the inability of God's people to obey his commands. Let me give you a couple examples. In Jeremiah 31, right after he has warned his people of judgment to come because they disobeyed his law, God promises his people a new covenant with them, a better covenant than the one he'd made with their fathers after he freed them from Egypt. What would make this new covenant Better than that old one. That's what he answers in Jeremiah 31. I'll put my law within them. That's what's different about this one. Not a set of standards out here to look at, to read, and then be judged by. I'll put my law inside of them. I'll write it on their hearts, he says, Jeremiah 31. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They won't have to teach one another to know me. 
for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll put my law inside them to make sure of it. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36, which Stephanie read for us earlier in our service, the Lord tells them, tells us how he would write his commands on the hearts of his people. How he would go beyond just printing those commands in stone or on paper so that they could see them and read them. How he would get them inside his people. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How? How will you do this renovation from the inside so the outside flows from love? I will put my spirit within you, God said, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Obedience comes from love, from a heart that wants to obey, that knows how good God's ways are. And that love, the prophets told us, that love would come from the Spirit. When God puts his own life, his own perfect and holy love for what is good inside the life of his people so that they're changed from the inside out. This is the Spirit Jesus has in mind in our passage. This is the Helper. This is the Spirit of truth. He's going to send the one who can change our hearts so we see what's true about God and love what is most lovable. You guys see it? If obedience comes from love for Jesus, love for Jesus comes from the work of the Spirit. It is His job to show us the beauty and the glory of the one who came for us. It's His job to make it so we obey those commands because we want to, not because we have to. God could have responded to his people when they struggled to obey him, when they couldn't keep those laws. He could have responded by sending a new law, maybe one that would be clearer, easier to understand, an updated manual of sorts to guide us into a new season. He didn't do that. He sent a person to help us instead, someone we could relate to and depend on. And when he decided to send a person, he could have sent us a person to kind of coach us up, to, to, to point us in the right direction and steer us on. Sometimes I think we Christians can kind of think of the Holy Spirit like that, as a, a little still and small voice that tells us what to do, kind of like a cosmic Jiminy Cricket, always on the shoulder, you know, pointing you in the right direction. Or maybe even worse, we could think about this person that's sent to us as a kind of Peloton bike coach, you know, on a video screen as you're pedaling along, telling you to keep going, you can do it, pedal faster, keep up the good work. But he hasn't sent us someone to coach us from the outside. Someone to tell us what we ought to do. He sent us someone to dwell inside us. To work us over in our hearts where it counts. Where all our behavior comes from. And to change us from the inside out. He could have just installed a new operating system. Some sort of robot brain that always and only does what it's coded to do. You know, like, like the movie, that, like the Stepford Wives movie. He could have made us like a Stepford wife. You know, it's just actually on the inside just a robot. Always doing exactly what the programmer wanted it to do. But he didn't do that. He wants to be known. He wants to be loved. He wants, he wants real people that he really cares about. So what did he do? He sent his own spirit. He sent his own life into his people. He sent the spirit of truth whose work is to open eyes to see him as he is. 
I, I love reading about history and I love watching baseball because my dad loves to read about history and loves to watch baseball. My dad didn't force me to love history or force me to love baseball. In the context of our relationship, in the context of my love for him, he showed me what he saw in these things. He pulled back the curtain so I could see why they're worth paying attention to. He shared, in other words, his love for these things with me. And that love then became mine. Through God's spirit, that's what God is doing in his people. He is coming in through his love to open our eyes to what the father has always seen in the son to what the Son has always seen in the Father, to share in the love that has bounced back and forth between them throughout all of eternity. He wants us inside that circle of life-giving, life-shaping love. And it's the Spirit's job to lead us straight in. Now, if obedience comes from love for Jesus and love for Jesus comes through the work of the Spirit, there are huge implications for us, both for how we grow in obedience and for how we help other people grow in obedience. And these are the implications I want to leave you with today. Huge implications for how we grow in obedience and for how we help others grow in obedience. See, here's what this has to do with how we grow in obedience. Sometimes, as a Christian, you'll feel like things are going pretty well. If and when you ever feel that way, what Jesus says here reminds you, give thanks for the Spirit. He's the one who worked in you. You don't get to take credit for it. See, sometimes in your, in your Christian life, at least in some areas of it, you, you'll be able to look up and say, I'm not where I was. You're going to experience growth. Sometimes you will know victory over things you used to always be defeated by. And, and when you see it, it feels awesome. You may notice you're putting yourself out there to serve others and no one had to ask you first. You may notice you didn't mind it that much. <laughs> that you didn't find yourself focused on how much it cost you to help, but how glad you were to have the chance to help. You may realize that a sin struggle that used to be a part of your every single day hadn't even crossed your mind lately. Lord willing, you're going to experience that kind of victory as you grow in your faith. But where you can tell that obedience to Jesus has gone well, you should absolutely note it. You should absolutely claim it. You should absolutely rejoice in it. But you, then you got to remember this. You cannot take credit for it. That work was his work in you. Our obedience to Jesus should never look to us like a resume of our accomplishments. We have to know better than that. It's not a resume of accomplishments. It's fruit of the Spirit. That's his image for it. We grow because he's at work. Not, look how much I've done, but look what he did in me. And where it's not going well, friends, where your battle against sin feels like defeat after defeat, what Jesus is saying here is you've got to depend on the Spirit. Sometimes you're going to feel stuck and you're not going to know what to do to get better. And if you're like me, when you feel that way, maybe you feel that way right now, you're probably craving something that you can control. Give me something to do. 
Give me something I can measure. Give me something tangible I can get my hands around. A solution I can use to fix it or to stop it or to get past it. I hate to feel powerless. Don't you? I'd rather experience heart change on my terms. (laughs) But God didn't send us a new program to follow. He sent us a helper to help us right at the heart of our strategy when it's not going well has got to be prayer to God for the help of his spirit whose job it is to change what we want. That's where we focus our efforts. Pray to him for his help as Jesus called us to do last week. And as we try to help each other grow in obedience, we need to know what Jesus has taught us today in these verses. Because ultimately, our job in a local church is to be a support system for each other's obedience to Jesus. That's, that's who we are as a church. It's, it, among the many things we are for one another, we are a, a system of encouragement and, and, and challenge to keep on, to keep on, to keep on. Reminding each other who we have in him and why it's so good to obey him. We've promised each other that kind of help. But if we're going to offer it, you've you got to know, before you're ready to help anybody, you've got to know I am not the standard they're supposed to meet. If I have got anything good going on in my life that I want to see going on in their life, all I've got to offer them is where this beggar found some bread. I will take you and show you where you can get the help that I got. I am nobody's standard to meet. And you're going to need to know not just are you nobody's standard, you are not the solution to the problems that they're facing. See, as a caregiver, a lot of times that's what you're going to want. Oh, how badly, especially if you love them. Will you want to be able to stop it for them? And if you want to have any kind of longevity as a faithful caregiver in a local church, you're going to need to know fixing someone else's sin struggle is way above your pay grade. It took the radical nuclear intervention of God sending his own spirit down into his people to get this job done. Your move is to pray that his spirit will do the work in them that you cannot. And to feed them the truth about Jesus that his spirit will open their eyes to see. That's your role. You'll need to know it to take up what you've promised to do. Friends, this is a simple and clear and wonderfully powerful word for us about our life together. And all of it hinges on the beauty of who God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you see that coming out of these verses? Sometimes we're so intimidated by the Trinity. If you've been a Christian very long at all, you know it can be so intimidating to try to understand how that works. And there's a lot about how God works that we don't get to look into. How beautiful is it that when Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit to show us Father, Son, and Spirit in action, he pulls back the curtain to tell us what to do with our troubled hearts. To show us that Father, Son, and Spirit are working together to help us. I will ask my Father, the Son says, to send you a helper, his own spirit. And this father doesn't say no to that son. When that son asks, this father says, yes, absolutely. And this spirit, he delights to come. You know why? He loves to see people love what he loves. He loves to show us the beauty of the son that he shines a spotlight on with all of his life's work in us. 
God is at work even now to give us everything we need to live lives that honor him. Let's pray that he'll help us to trust him. Oh, Father, we do pray that by your spirit, you would carry on the work of making us new. We pray for hearts that love what you love and for lives that obey you from joy and love and not from fear or pride. And we pray that you'd make us wise in how we help each other to trust Jesus by his spirit to do this work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.